had a birthday two days ago. Give her a hand. Open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount this last few weeks, really since Easter, and we'll eventually get past Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're coming to kind of a capstone passage today as we look at verses 1 through 12. Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. The cool thing is, after he preaches the sermon, at the end of chapter 7, people look at each other and say, we never heard anybody preach like this. He doesn't preach like our preachers do. And so Jesus is unpacking some spiritual truth about the righteous life. And you see the word righteous several times in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You saw it back in chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's implied by that? What's implied by that is some of the people that are listening to him were scribes and Pharisees. And he's saying, you're not going to heaven. You're just religious. There's a big difference in being religious and living the righteous life. In chapter 6, verse 1, he said, if you only practice your righteousness to be seen by man, you've already received your reward. And then last sermon, he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we get to chapter 7, verse 1, and these 12 verses that we're going to look at today or a culmination of what he's been teaching so far in chapters 5 and 6. It's about how to live the righteous life. It's about relationships. And you're going to think, reading verses 1 through 5, then you get to verse 6, and you're thinking, how'd that get there? And then transition to 7, you're like, how does this all fit together? Hopefully you'll see that as we look through it. In fact, let me just start by reading verse 12. Verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, says this. In everything, therefore... So what he's preaching up to this point, he says, in everything that I've taught you, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. But this is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament. He says, here's the teaching that you've received so far, and that is treat people the way you want them to treat you. Don't treat people the way they've treated you. Don't treat people the way you expect them to treat you, but treat people the way you'd want them to treat you. So... That's the, the bottom line on the message today. Let's go back and look at verses 1 through 6, and then we'll get to verses 7 through 12. Jesus speaking, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, it will be, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be, you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under your feet, and under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. So the, the first part of this passage is don't judge. What does the word judge mean? The word judge means try, condemn, punish. It means you become judge jury and executioner and yet there's throughout the new testament we're told to make judgments about things so how do you reconcile that let me show you another verse first first corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 the spiritual person judges all things but he himself is to be judged by no one so how can you on one hand say don't judge anybody and in chapter 2 of first corinthians verse 15 paul's teaching that we're to make judgments Here's, here's how you do that. Here's why there's a distinction. 
The word used in Matthew is the word for try, condemn, punish. You become judge, jury, and executioner. The word in 1 Corinthians has the same root, but it has a prefix to it, which makes it say, examine closely, ask, discern, investigate. So here's what Jesus is preaching against. Jesus is preaching against us taking the role of God in people's lives. Jesus is preaching against us condemning other people. Here's the problem in our generation. You ask somebody what their convictions are about social issues or things in the Bible, and the answer I get often is, well, here's what I believe, but I don't want to judge anybody. Well, you're not judging people if you tell them the truth. So don't condemn. We are commanded. Do not judge. Do not condemn anyone because in the same way you've condemned other people, you yourself will be condemned. So don't condemn, but make judgments about things. Examine, look, ask. You need to have somebody in your life that has the freedom to come to you when you've done something you shouldn't have done and say, am I right? Did you say that or did you do that? Is that really what you meant to do? Is that really what you meant to say? So, yes, we can be brothers and sisters. In fact, the people that Jesus is speaking to are Christians. They're people who become followers of his. Back in chapter 5, or really chapter 4 leading into chapter 5, it talks about the fact thousands are coming to him from places that has heard about Jesus. They're coming to be healed because he's healing of every disease and sickness. And they become his followers. But not everybody in the crowd is following Jesus. Some of them were the simply religious people. They were satisfied with their religion. And they were the ones condemning other people. We're talking a minute about why people condemn. But Romans 8, 1 says this, in case you're worried about condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. Listen, you're going to face people that will condemn you. And I had a friend named Dave Busby who said, you've got to determine if you've been loved on by a brother or have you been slimed by a Pharisee. I've been in the church a long time. I've been youth pastor at a couple of churches. I've been pastor here. Some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet are people you meet at church. Why is that? They're miserable, and they'll make your life miserable. So when somebody comes up to you and confronts you over an issue, you need to ask the question, have they lovingly confronted me because they're wanting to help me? Or they just want to make themselves look better and me look smaller. So the word is don't judge, don't condemn, don't try, condemn, punish. It's not, that's not your job. And he gives an illustration. Why look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log in your own eye? You've heard this verse before. What does speck mean? Speck would be a little twig, maybe even a little splinter that's in your brother's eye. It needs to be dealt with, but you can't deal with it because you look like this. Look at this picture. There it is. That's a sad-looking individual, isn't it? He's in pain. He needs somebody to come along and take this timber out of his eye. How can he help you if he's got a log sticking out of his own eye? So Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point. He's saying, listen, there may be a speck in your brother's eye, but you're condemning that brother because there's a log in your own eye. And it may very well be the very thing you're condemning them about is something you're struggling with yourself. So Jesus says, why do you look... At your brother's eye, don't even notice. You haven't observed fully and carefully your own eye. So before you go to someone to confront them over an issue, ask yourself, God, is this something you're teaching me? Maybe, maybe I've got this same issue myself. That's why it's so glaring to me. First, he says, well, he says, how do, how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye and behold the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Jesus was speaking to a whole bunch of hypocrites. The word hypocrite means to act under assumed character. Back in the day of Jesus, most of the plays that they had were done by men. But if they wanted to have a women's role, they just put a mask on. 
So to be an actor meant you wore a mask. You weren't really revealing who you really were. You're pretending to be something you're not. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't try to take a speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log protruding from your own eye. You're a hypocrite. You're pretending. You're not acknowledging that you've got your own issues. You're trying to take care of issues of somebody else without taking care of yourself first. So the fact is there is a speck in your brother's eye. It needs to be dealt with. It doesn't need to be ignored, but take the log out of your own eye first. And then he says, you, hip, you hypocrite. But he says, do not give what is holy to dogs nor throw pearls before swine because they're going to trample them and turn and devour you. And I wonder, what is that verse about? How did it get there? What's that verse about? Well, it's about 31 words. Well, let me tell you what I believe it's about. Jesus is talking about Christians relating to each other about the speck in the log. He's saying, listen, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, and you notice something in your brother or sister's life that needs attention, first examine yourself so that you can come clean and pure yourself. But now he's talking about how you treat unbelievers. What he's saying is don't, don't take what is holy and put it before unbelievers, expecting them to respond positively to it. Because what, what sometimes people are interested in is just behavior modification. I remember being youth pastor at a church where one of the adults approached me and said, you know, I saw some teenagers smoking after your youth meeting the other night. Of course, my first thought was, I wonder where they saw that. Maybe it was the deacons that were helping unload children out of the back of cars and taking them into the nursery with a cigarette in one hand and a baby in the other hand, condemning. They were fussing at me about something that we needed to deal with on a larger level at the church. So what Jesus is talking about is you're not talking about Christians anymore. You're talking about unchristians. They don't need behavior modification. They need transformation. They need Jesus to do a work in their life. They need to be prayed for. They need to hear the gospel to know the truth, and the truth will set them free. So why do people condemn anyway? I'm glad you asked that question. I've got three thoughts. One, to elevate themselves. Some people will make fun of others, condemn others, and they'll do it in front of them or behind their back because they're trying to make themselves look better. If you have to condemn somebody else to make yourself feel better, you got issues. So first, they'll do it to elevate themselves. Second, they forgot their own issues. Every now and then, we just need to remember where we've come from. When you look at a brother or sister and think they've got some sin issues in their life, you need to remember, that was me a few years ago. Or maybe it was me yesterday. And you need to remember the cesspool you've come from. So you help people out of love, not out of condemnation. So first... Some people condemn because they're trying to make themselves look better. Some condemn because they've forgotten their own issue and their own need of grace themselves. They're not offering grace to people because they've forgotten they've received grace. The third thought is they've forgotten their place. You're not the Holy Spirit. You ever, ever met people, don't raise your hand, don't point at anybody for sure. But you ever meet people that, that think they're God, that somehow think God needed their help to point out condemnation in your life? So the reason they condemn is they're playing armchair Holy Spirit. But look at verse John chapter 5, verse 22. This is Jesus speaking again. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Remember that next time you think about judging someone in a way that will condemn or punish them. That's not your role. That's not your job. That's Jesus' job. And I've heard people say, well, you know, when you see God in heaven one day, Jesus is going to be your defense attorney. No, he's your defense attorney now. According to 1 John chapter 2, he's your advocate with the Father now. But one day you'll face him as the righteous judge sitting on the throne. And you want to be one of his children when you face him. 
So that's judgment illustrated. Then he turns to prayer. Let me read verses 7 through 11. Jesus speaking again. In fact, these are commands. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks will find. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will, give, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So Jesus has already taught on prayer during the Sermon on the Mount, but he comes now to a command. First one is ask. Do you know that God wants you to ask him for things? In fact, in James it says you don't have because you haven't asked. Or you've asked for the wrong motive. You've asked for your own benefit. God wants to give you good things. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. So he says to ask. And it's, the tense of the word is keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Because if you ask, it will be given to you. Don't raise your hand. Don't answer out loud. But what are you asking God for now? Examine your prayer life every now and then and just say, God, what am I asking you for? If you keep a prayer journal, look back over the last few weeks or months and say, you know, God's answered prayer, but what have I been asking him for? Some people want to ask God for small stuff, and some people want to ask God for big stuff. I don't know where you get the, the ratio just exactly right, but God wants you to ask him for everything, whether it seems too small to bother him or it seems too big. There's nothing too big for God, right? But there's also nothing too small for God. So Jesus is commanding his followers, these thousands of people that are listening to him on the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, ask, seek. Seek God. I think God is pleased when we seek Him. Finding Him is the most important thing because He's not lost. We are. Coming to faith in Christ, seek and you will find. Knock, literally to rap. It's an effort. It's, it's progression from asking to seeking to knocking. You become more actively involved. And those who knock, it will be open. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. These are a command and an invitation. Isn't that great to hear God, Jesus teach, you're to come before God and ask him for things. Because of the blood of Christ as a believer that's been applied to your life, you can come into the very throne room of God according to Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10. You can come before the throne of grace and mercy to receive mercy and grace in time of need. And it shows a growing awareness on the de- and dependence on God. Then he illustrates it. Jesus illustrated the idea of judgment. He's illustrating the idea of prayer. What man is there among you if the son asking for a loaf would give him a stone? He's, he's comparing evil, earthly, human fathers to the, your heavenly father. If you ask your earthly father for a, a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a stone, is he? He goes on to say, even, even that father knows better than to do that. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to figure the difference out between a stone and a piece of bread or a loaf of bread. But especially in the Holy Land, there are rocks everywhere. And when Jesus was tempted... By the devil, he said, why don't you turn that stone into bread? He could have done that. But you know what? Some of the stones over there already look like a loaf of bread. Now, I think you would figure it out before you cracked your tooth on trying to bite the loaf. But he's saying an earthly father is better than that. He wouldn't give a son a stone if he asked him for bread. And he wouldn't give him a snake if he asked for a fish. If the son comes and said, hey, Dad, I'm hungry. Can you fry me up some fish? The dad's not going to say, I'm going to give him a snake. Because for a Jew, a snake was an unclean animal anyway. It was forbidden to eat them. It wouldn't be healthy for you. I know people that eat snake, but I prefer fish. It's like he's offering the worse than a generic substitute. 
And Jesus says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven? Think about that for a minute. As a parent, if your child needs something, what you want to do is provide that for that child. If that child comes and asks you for something, you're not going to give them something that would substitute that, that would hurt them or be harmful for them. You're going to give it to them, right, if you're able to and if it's helpful. So he gives good things to those who ask. So keep that in mind. Our Father in heaven gives good to those who ask. I shared about three of these thoughts during the sermon a few weeks ago when we were talking about prayer, but I've expanded it to six things. Here's requirements for receiving from God. First, you must be a child of God. If you're going to ask God for something beyond salvation, you need to be one of his followers. You need to be a child of God. It's interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, when he refers to scribes and Pharisees, when he refers to those people, it's always in the third person. When he's teaching on prayer, he's in the first person because he's speaking to his followers. So be a child of God. Second, you must be obedient. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22 And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are right and pleasing in his sight. So the second thought is you have to be obedient. Third, have the proper motive. I've already quoted James 4, 3, but let me read it. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So check your motives. In fact, occasionally in prayer, ask God, God, am I even praying the right thing? Guard my heart. Guard my motives. See if there's any wicked way within me. You must be submissive to his will, John, 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We also need to be persistent, Luke 11, 8, and verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. That's part of a parable that Jesus was teaching about a man who had out-of-town company come in at the last minute. So he goes over to his friend's house to knock on the door to get some bread. And the friend doesn't want to get up because everybody in the household is asleep. He doesn't want to disrupt the household. And so he's not going to get up and give him anything except for the fact the guy keeps knocking. And so because of his persistence, in fact, the word is shameless persistence, the friend will get up and give him as much as he needs. Jesus is using that as an illustration to illustrate how God treats his children. You need to be persistent. Keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. Number five was you must be persistent. And it's not because the Father's unwilling. Persistence keeps reminding us of our dependence on him. Some people think, well, if God knows what I need already, why do I pray to start with? Because it connects us with who's given us what we're asking for. So God already knows, but he wants us to ask. And the last one, verse number six, is James 1, 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for he who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Ask in faith. So, you must be a child of God. You need to be obeying God. You need to ask with proper motives. You must be submissive to his will. You must be persistent, and you must ask in faith. So, how's your prayer life? Are you asking God for things? Are you asking God for small things and big things? Are you still seeking? Are you still knocking? That's the reason to keep a prayer journal, to write down, here's what I'm praying for. And it may be that during your prayer, God redirects your will, your desire, because he's going to give you the desires of your heart. That may mean he changes your desire, and you realize, what I've been asking for is not really what I need. This is what I need. If he knows our need while I pray, it shows dependence on him. I've also heard people say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. How do you know God didn't answer your prayer? He may not have answered it the way you asked it, but he answered your prayer. 
I was with a group of students who had just lost a, a friend of theirs, high school student. He'd fallen off the back of a truck and was in a coma for about two weeks. And the school called in some pastors in the area, and so I went. And I had a little group of about 20 students, and they said, God didn't answer our prayer. I said, well, what did you pray? We prayed that God would heal him and make him well again. I said, well, let me ask you this. What do you know about your friend? Well, he was a believer. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. I said, so based on that, where is he now? Well, he's with God. Then he, did he answer your prayer? You prayed God would heal him and make him well again. He's well now. He's in no more pain. He's not in a coma. He's in the presence of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God sometimes answers our prayers, and we don't give him credit because he didn't answer the way we prayed it. So keep your eyes open to say, you know what? God did answer that prayer. And sometimes the answer is no. Parents, do you, your child ever ask you for something you don't give them because you know it's not good for them? Well, our Heavenly Father is better than we are. And we ask him for things that he doesn't give it to us because he knows this is not what will help you. This could end up hurting you. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. God knows you need it. So make it a point to ask him. And then he finishes the section with the verse I started with. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together.